0: After years of uninterrupted ministry, we find ourselves in a time where Christianity is becoming perhaps more suspect to the world around us. A couple of examples. There are some who take to the news to suggest that church gatherings are super spreaders of COVID-19. We see officials uh, in Washington trying to make a case that Amy Coney Barrett's faith is going to lead to the ruin of American society if she's confirmed to the Supreme Court saying some interesting things about her. At the same time, there's a general backdrop of societal unrest. It's truly an unusual time. And while I'm not suggesting that we are facing the kind of persecution that Paul faced in Ephesus or elsewhere, I will say that the idea of a sudden riot breaking out in our town and Christians perhaps being called on the carpet is not as far-fetched as it used to be, right? Not quite as remote of an image, in my mind at least, as we see uh, those sorts of moments of unrest happening all around our nation. We're seeing lots of demonstrations in lots of places, near and far, over lots of different issues. Some are peaceful, some are not. Some are rallies, some are riots. Often the point of these gatherings is to angrily complain about who is to blame for one problem or another. And no doubt many of you have been invited to a gathering of that sort, either on social media or maybe by a friend or family member. And these sorts of peaceful protests have their place in a free society, the peaceful ones. We're not talking about riots. We're talking about, you know, gatherings and demonstrations that are peaceful and uh, done so following law and order. They have their place in a free society. But what is our part to play? Or what might we expect and how might we respond in a time like this? Well, God's Word gives us guidance and an example here in Acts chapter 19. And even if this passage isn't going to end up being a direct preparation for us as Christians in Hanford, we can still be built up by being reminded of what Christianity is. And we can be built up and fortified against the kinds of attacks the the enemy might use in our city or in our nation against God's people. And we can be reminded of just how helpful and essential the church really is. We begin in verse 21 of chapter 19. We see, after these events, Paul resolved by the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. After I've been there, he said, it's necessary for me to see Rome as well. We saw last time that a wonderful revival was taking place in the city of Ephesus. Lots of people were getting saved and having their lives transformed, lots of miracles happening. It was a special time. We're about 25 years past Pentecost at this point, and Paul has spent the last two or three years in the city of Ephesus being used by God in all sorts of neat ways. But now he's decided to move on. Or rather, I should say that he and the Lord decided it together. Certainly, it was his desire to go back to some of the places he had been before and ministered to the churches and the believers there. But it wasn't just his plan. The Holy Spirit compelled him to go. The next, in the next chapter, he's going to say that he was bound to do it. Uh, it was his duty. It was uh, put on his heart, uh, not by his own desires alone, but by God the Holy Spirit. One thing it shows us is that the Apostle Paul consistently had plans for future ministry, while also not neglecting present opportunities right in front of him. Paul was great about being in the moment and seeing what was right in front of him, the needs, the open doors. Remember that scene when he's in the city of Athens by himself? He's kind of looking around and and he realizes a great spiritual need in that city and then a great opportunity for him to preach about Jesus Christ. But he also kept making future plans for more service to the Lord. Things that he put on the list of places he wanted to go, uh, not necessarily just for his own pleasure or his own desire, but places he wanted to go so that he could preach and he could minister and he could do a work for the king. If we follow his thinking during this time in his life, piecing together what's written here and what he wrote elsewhere, his plan was to go to Greece, then to Jerusalem, ultimately on to Rome, and then even as far as Spain. That was his plan, his desire, uh, sort of his connect the dots that he was working off of. He had a passion for ministry and the preaching of the gospel. And while we might say he was motivated by a a personal drive or a personal desire to go out and around the world to minister, we also see that he was disciplined enough to be directed by God, the Holy Spirit. He didn't just follow his own internal motivation, right? The great message of every Disney and Pixar movie, follow your feelings, right? do what your heart tells you. Now, Paul's heart would spur him on to a lot of good things in his ministry, but we see that he was spiritually um, humble and mature and disciplined enough to say, okay, I have this motivation. I want to get to Spain. I want to go here. I want to go there. I have this plan. But he was disciplined enough to say, I'll let the Lord decide. And we saw that in previous passages before the first time he went to Greece, right? He said, I'm going to go to Asia. The Lord said, no, I would like you to not do that. And he was disciplined enough to say, okay, I will be directed by God. I'll set my motivation aside for a moment. Uh, and, and then say, okay, well, I, I want to minister somewhere. How about over here? And then the Lord said, no, I forbid you to go over there. Until ultimately he said, okay, Lord, where am I going? And he says, go to Macedonia. There you get the Macedonian call. Come over here and help us. Right? And so this mentality kept Paul from becoming the kind of person that never did anything until that big ministry opportunity came along. One day I'm going to do something for the Lord. One day I'm going to preach the gospel. I'm just waiting for my spiritual ship to come in. He wasn't like that, but he also kept him from doing his own thing all the time and calling it missions or calling it, you know, I'm serving God. And that's sometimes a tendency that Christians um, can slip into of they get an idea. It seems good. It looks good. It maybe even is good, but it really wasn't God's idea. But they label it God's idea, and then they kind of just go barging around, and I'm doing this for God, and I'm doing that for God, and I'm building this, and I'm establishing that, and... uh, Maybe the Lord never actually asked you or never directed you to do that. And so Paul's mentality here helps keep him in balance, and that's a good thing. Now, if you were to look at a map, and most of you in in your analog Bibles have a map of Paul's uh, missionary journey here, you'll see that if you want to end up in Jerusalem, like he said he wants to... Uh, ultimately Rome, but he says, hey, I want to go to Jerusalem. That's my sort of target destination right now. Then going to Macedonia is the wrong way, going in the opposite direction. Why take the long way around? Well, trouble was brewing in the church at Corinth, and Paul felt a duty to get involved. And he also wanted to gather an offering from the Gentile churches in the region to be brought to believers in need in Jerusalem. So it wasn't just that Paul was wanting to do something new and exciting. It's not that Paul got itchy, uh, you know, as he was, I've been in Ephesus too long and got some kind of wanderlust and I just want to get out and, and go somewhere. That's not, that's not the deal. Uh, that can happen to Christians too sometimes, like, let's just do something new, and let's just do something exciting. Let's just do something really fun. There's an excitement to do something new. And often God does call us as individuals or families or a church to do new things. But you know, it's always easier to pick the job of planting some fun new thing than it is to do the weed pulling, right? If you were going to pick the job between, hey, plant this new little apple tree, this is going to be so fun, or go out and pull weeds for an hour and a half. I mean, right? It's probably, you know, most of us are probably aren't going to pick the weed pulling job. But in the wide scope of ministry, sometimes God asks his people, you and I, to do a bunch of weed pulling. So Paul was going to have to go back to Corinth and kind of deal with some real problems that were going on there. And he was going back there and he was going to you know, collect you know, an offering that he was ultimately going to bring into Jerusalem. Now, had Paul just said, who cares about all that? I just want to go to a new cool city and plant a new cool church there. Okay, but what about these other things? I mean, there's still a duty, right, as, as Christian minister, ministers and brothers and sisters that we have to one another to not just, oh, turn them a blind eye to whatever's going on in Corinth. You know, those people can figure out how to send the money themselves. So Paul was willing to do uh, this ministry that was perhaps less glamorous than some of the other things he was asked to do. Verse 22, after sending to Macedonia, two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. The selflessness in this act. These guys helped Paul, whose life was difficult and fraught with peril and hardship. Uh, But for the sake of the family in Corinth, he sent them out. Now Timothy had a pastor's heart and a pastor's calling, and Corinth needed a compassionate pastor at the time. Erastus, we will learn in Romans 16, had been the city treasurer there in Corinth, and so he was a good candidate to send to prepare. Uh, the gathering of funds for relief in Judah, trustworthy guy who knew how to work numbers and those sorts of things. Now listen, while your resume, your earthly resume, while your earthly resume doesn't determine or limit what kind of thing you can do for God, you can use your abilities and position for the furtherance of the gospel. Of course we love to say around here and in, in the Calvary Chapel tradition that you know God uses the base things of the world he uses the foolish things of the world look what God can do through a common person with you know you don't have to have a bunch of PhDs in order to tell people about Jesus you don't have to you know go jump through all of these earthly hoops at the same time you know, each and every person in here has uh, a different skill set, different abilities, different things that would fall, for example, on an earthly resume, different spheres of influence, we might call it, or different places that God has placed you where you interact with certain kinds of people in certain kinds of professions. And so while your earthly abilities and position don't limit what God can do with you, you can still use those things for the furtherance of the gospel, and we should. Dorcas could sew, so she sewed for Jesus Christ, right? Um, uh, Joseph of Arimathea had money and influence. He used those things to honor Jesus Christ. If you have a mind for administration, offer it to the Lord, see what he might do with it. If you're in a position of leadership in some company or some municipality or whatever, use it to glorify the name of Jesus Christ. Uh, we don't want to shy away and say, well, you know, I don't want to assume that. You know, God wants m- me to use my head for numbers for ministry, so I'll avoid doing that. Hey, maybe God doesn't want to use your head for numbers for ministry in your local church, but maybe He does. And so be led by the Spirit and realize that everything in your life is an offering unto the Lord. Verse 23 says this About that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. Why now? Why not shake things up in the previous two years when miracles are breaking out and revivals happening in the city? Of course, we know that the devil can't simply do whatever he wants, and so, you know, obviously God was extending protection to Paul in his ministry throughout his time in Ephesus. But now, just as the apostles about to pack up and go, suddenly there's this onslaught, you know, they're suddenly they're getting shelled by the bad guys. What's going on? It reminded me of a moment in the very classic movie Star Trek, The Wrath of Khan. If you're a Star Wars fan, I'm sorry. We're Trekkies over here. I am at least, but in Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, Khan the villain is chasing our heroes, right? They're trying to get away and they're about to escape into the nebula. Ooh, it's purple, right? So they're about to escape into the nebula and one of Khan's lieutenants turns to him and says, if they go in there, we'll lose them. And so Khan says, explain it to them. And that means open fire. So they just open fire on the enterprise and the battle ensues, right? So Paul's launching out again. And I'm sure in his strategizing, the devil would rather have Paul stuck in one place than on the move. That's my guess. I don't, you know, obviously we don't know everything that's going on in the spiritual warfare, uh, you know, plane in this passage. But if, if I'm the devil and I see that Paul's getting ready to pack up and hit the road again, I think I'd like him to just stay right here. Yeah, he's doing damage in Ephesus, but you know, let's keep him here. Maybe that's part of it. Maybe not. Now here, Christianity is referred to as the way. We don't use that phrase much anymore. Maybe we should. It reminds us that we are headed somewhere. We are leaving this world behind one day and we're supposed to bring people along with us. We're reminded that this way is a very different way than the unbelieving world is taking. Different destination, different pace, different scenery and purpose. We are reminded that it is the way, not the stance. I think that's an important thing to think of. Your life as a Christian is the way, not the stance. I follow a certain set of doctrinal positions, and that's it, and I just let everybody else know that they're wrong about their positions, and now I'm done. That is the extent of my Christianity. That's not what it is. By definition, the way is an image of progress and development and growth. It requires participation and endurance and trust as we walk along after the leading of our Lord, often without much visibility. Here in Hanford, we're, uh, especially when we're not in the middle of the drought, but man, that fog rolls in and we all learn as we're driving to navigate the fog, right? I don't have a lot of visibility, but I'm still gonna get where I'm going if I follow some good rules, like stop driving so fast in the fog, right? And so uh, a similar thing, we're on the way, I can't always see where I'm going, but I know I'm following the Lord and I'm making progress. I'm headed towards a definite destination and I'm supposed to bring people along with me. Now, why were the unbelieving Ephesians so disturbed? Why was it a major disturbance? We'll get some specifics in a moment, but we know generally it was because these Christians were so different. Those who had been pagan weren't pagan anymore. Those who had shared a mindset of materialism didn't feel the same way anymore. This caused a great agitation among the unbelievers. And it's a great contrast to what is meant to be true of us as Christians. You know, these people were being exposed to the gospel and it made them very agitated. They were upset and agitated and disturbed. Rather than us be agitated in the Christian faith, we're meant to be agents of peace and joy as we go throughout the world, seasoning it like salt, right? Uh, That's the idea. Verse 24 a person named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. Another name for Artemis is Diana, so I'm probably going to accidentally say Diana. It's easier to say than Artemis. Now, this guy was a leader among those craftsmen who made pornographic pagan mementos for worshipers and tourists. The Temple of Diana or Artemis in Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the world. Major tourist destination, even back then, like a big deal. Uh, if you go to the Leaning Tower of Pisa, dollars a donut says you're coming back with a figurine of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? You may get a cheap one, you may not get a cheap one, but you're coming back with a keychain of the Leaning Tower of Pisa, right? Same idea, except for that it was also wrapped up in weird um, pornographic pagan worship. And so this guy was kind of a leader among the people who made these little shrines, made these little images. And we learn here that he was doing just fine as far as economics go, a great deal of business. But his business was a detriment to the lives and souls of the people around him and ultimately the world around him. When you think about it on the spiritual level, this guy... You know, you're, you're going to work to, and you're working in molten silver day in and day out. Okay, but what you're really doing is furnishing the spiritual prisons of the people around you. You're, you're making it so that people are more tightly trapped in their sin, more tightly trapped in darkness uh, rather than being exposed to the light of the gospel. Listen, some professions are just ungodly and wrong. They just are. There are industries that God-fearing people have no business being a part of, and I don't need to list any of them because the Holy Spirit will disqualify those things in our hearts as we walk with him. But what we, want, but what we do in the nine to five actually matters, right? What you do in your life, you, it may, your job may feel really pointless at times, but, but God says that what you do matters. Number one, he can use it for his glory. Number one, two, he can use it for your sanctification. But number three, what you do matters, And if the things that we do in our regular vocation or day-to-day life, if we're part of some industry that brings destruction and sorrow and enslavement to people, then we should count it as loss and walk away. That's exactly what a bunch of Ephesians had done in the passage before. They were all into magic and all this stuff. And what did they do? They said, hey, we got to get rid of this stuff. We're gonna burn all of these books of magic as millions of dollars worth of books. But they said, I'm counting that loss for the sake of the gospel so that I can be unencumbered as I follow after Jesus Christ. Verse 25 says this. "When When he had assembled them, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, man, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. Oh, here it is. This is the primary reason for the disturbance. Christianity was a threat to their prosperity. Hit them in the pocketbook, they decided. Is God for prosperity? There's a whole swath of teaching out there called the prosperity gospel. Steer clear, please. It suggests that God wants you to be healthy and wealthy and have material blessing all the time, and if you aren't healthy and wealthy, you must not have enough faith. Uh, That's the general gist of it. Now, reading the Bible, I think a fairer question than is God for prosperity might be to ask whether God is against prosperity. When you see a lot of the stories and warnings and teachings and, and those sorts of things, the answer has to be sometimes but not always. Listen, God is against ill-gotten wealth. That's clear from the get-go. If, you're, if you are making yourself rich off of the exploitation of others or the theft from others or these sorts of things. God is, is out and out against that. You know, he doesn't have a mentality of, hey, get rich or die trying. I mean, he, he says, hey, look, he would, he would even turn to his own people, Israel, and he says, you are, you are getting rich off the backs of your brothers, and that is wrong, and I'm gonna judge you for it, right? So sometimes God is against prosperity, depending on how it was uh, piled up. He's opposed to people becoming rich through the taking advantage of others. And he often warns his people about the spiritual dangers of material prosperity. I mean, that's just a truth in the Bible. And God says a lot of warnings to people who are rich. And he says, hey, be careful. Be careful, be careful, be careful. But it's also clear that being well off as a rule is not a bad thing as far as the Bible is concerned. Many of our Old Testament heroes were incredibly wealthy. Even here in the book of Acts, we see faithful, spirit-filled believers who had a lot compared to others. Lydia is a good example, business owner, seller of purple. She was doing very well for herself. There's no condemnation for her that she had money. In fact, she was able to use her wealth to bless people, to open her home to the church and, and to, and to um, show the gift of hospitality. So there's no problem with Lydia having more than the poor people next to her. Cornelius is another example in the book of Acts. He had a household and servants and those sorts of things. And we're told that he gave a lot of money to the poor. Listen, if no one has any money, then things like Bibles don't get printed as much, right? And things like relief through organizations like Samaritan's Purse that are able to go like, there was a typhoon today, we're on the the plane right now sending all kinds of resources and help and the gospel and, every, and things that they need. We're going to send it right now at no cost to anybody, right? If no one has any money and follows the Lord, then that's a problem. It's not that God needs our money, but God uses the resources of people. And so is the Bible, is God anti-prosperity? Sometimes, but not always. Now, it's the heart that God is interested in, not the wallet or not the content of the bank account necessarily, We should be careful because the wallet does tend to exert influence over the heart, according to God's word. It somehow sends a little tendril if we aren't careful to guard against it, to wrap around our heart and say, ooh, but do you really want to do that? Do you really want to give that away? So listen, God is for dramatic generosity. He's a dramatically generous God. And God is for us blessing people with what we have. Now, you can be the widow who gives her two mites and the Lord is blessed by that. Or you can be Cornelius and you're shelling out like large sums to people and God is blessed with that as well. Uh, The deal is your heart, not a certain number on a piece of paper that says, well, this net worth is okay and this net worth is not okay. And that's one of the problems if you get into reading a lot of you know Christian books or popular bloggers and those sorts of things, we get this mentality of like, you know, well, it's, it, it, it's, God doesn't want his people, any of them, to be rich. Of course, I'm not rich. The guy next to me is rich, but not me. And you think, okay, these are relative terms. Most of us, you realize that most of us live better than King Solomon lived because we have a toilet in the house, right? <laughs> we have a refrigerator. We have a car. Like, we have these things that are very basic to human existence today, But we live on a comfort level better than the kings of of the east, the kings of old, right? But would we say that we're the wealthiest people out there? Well, no, we wouldn't say that either. So obviously, there's not some magic number. Instead, the Lord says, hey, where's your heart? Are you the widow, or are you Lydia, or are you Dorcas, or are you Cornelius? All of those people could glorify God with what they had. So that's the deal, and we just want to be led by the Spirit. It's the heart God cares about. Verse 26, you see and hear not only that in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this man, Paul, is persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin, the very one all of Asia and the world worship. They considered Christianity to not only be a threat to their prosperity, but also to their philosophy and to their prominence. They said, Paul's teaching that handmade gods aren't gods, and that's a problem for us. Man, what a sad philosophy. Isn't that a sad thing? This guy's being serious. I mean, I think he's mostly motivated by his pocketbook, but I think this guy really believes this. He's devoted his life to making shrines of the great goddess. And he's speaking of her, you know, in overtures of how wonderful she is. And what a sad thing to believe in. This little silver idol that I made will protect me and give my life meaning and bring me vibrance and fertility. Diana is a god of fertility, right? Now, we're removed from that sort of overtly pagan way of thinking. Now, we have a little shrine and that this thing gives my life meaning and gives my life protection. We're Removed from that, we're much more sophisticated. Now instead, the human heart says, oh man, my paycheck gives my life meaning. My career will protect me. In the place of a silver shrine, we might put our identity or some affiliation to some group that we think are gonna keep our lives steered on course. And then God comes along in his grace and with his truth and he dismantles all of those lies and he reveals how lost and rudderless we are as human beings without him. He says, man, you guys are lost in darkness. You're like the blind leading the blind. Uh, you guys are in so much trouble just believing lies, thinking that these things are going to give your life meaning, that these things are going to protect you and lead you on into where you want to go, and you're just in so, so much trouble. But then, after breaking the bad news to us, he reveals the truth of uh, 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 the truth that we can build a life on, a, a good life that matters, that has an internal impact. As Christians, we want to be delivering truth to people, not feelings, not platitudes. We want to give them truth. We can argue against the philosophies of this world, and we should, and the end goal should be that we then give them the truth of life. Here's really what human life is about. Here's really the meaning of life and what's going on in this world. Here's really why you are feeling this way or that way, and and I know it because God has revealed it in his word. The Ephesians were bothered that Christianity also might destroy the prominence of their proudly pagan city. They can't even hear the absurdity of their beliefs. Hearing them talk, you'd think that Artemis was some sort of ancient Tinkerbell who can only survive if enough people clap for her all the time, right? Puny God, right? And to quote uh, the Professor Hulk, right? I mean, this pulls back a curtain for us, though, on the mindset of the unbeliever, Listen, don't expect people out in the world to hold rational beliefs. Why should they? They shouldn't. The, the book of Romans explains how, yeah, when, we, when you're trapped in sin, you're given over to a debased mind. We look at this and we think, that's crazy that someone would believe that about a little silver shrine. But human beings will believe anything. That's why God has to come and give us a new mind and says, man, I put the mind of Christ in you. Got rid of that old, that old worn out thing. And so don't expect people to have rational beliefs if they don't know the Lord. This is really important in a volatile time that we find ourselves in. People believe crazy things. And there are things that seem to make sense to them because they're trapped in sin. There's no use beating a person like that upside the head. It's the heart we need to focus on. The truth will set them free, Jesus said. So we want to base our ministry and our compassion towards them, our behavior towards them, on the unchanging truth of Scripture. Because that's what's going to set them free as they uh, repent and turn to God. What's a real-world application of this idea? Let me just say this. In this passage, there's no Christian petition to close the temple of Artemis. There's no Christian demonstration to do so. Now, I'm guessing there was a lot of prayer for that to happen. But the Christians here believe that if a person's life was transformed... They wouldn't keep being pagan, and that's true. So listen, I've signed petitions. I've even signed petitions recently. I'm not against that or dogging on that, but in, in our minds, the ultimate answer for what's wrong in our society, whether it's local, national, or international, is that people need to be set free from sin and given a new life in Christ. That's the deal. We can prove it from the Bible and we can prove it from history. That's the answer. what does what America need? California need, Hanford need, the world need. It needs people to give their lives to Jesus Christ and allow him to transform them. Here, we can prove it. The revival in Wales, 1904, 1905. You can look at historic revivals like that and see what happens, how not only people are transformed by the gospel, but then the places they live in are also transformed by the gospel. During that one year or so of revival... About 150,000 people maybe were saved out of a population of 2.4 million. So statistically speaking, not, it's not like everyone in Wales got saved. 150,000 out of 2.4 million, about 6%, right? But even that relatively small percentage was enough that, here, quote, the crime rate dropped Often to nothing in some places, the police forces reported they had little more to do than supervise the coming and going of people to chapel prayer meetings. Magistrates turned up at courts to discover they had no cases to try. The mines underground echoed with the sounds of prayer and hymns instead of nasty jokes. They say that not only did the miners put in a better day's work, but also that the pit ponies were so used to being cursed at, They couldn't understand orders being given to them in kind, clean words, and yet the output increased in their work. That's the kind of stuff that happened in little old Wales, right? That's the kind of salty effect that the church is meant to have in Hanford and the wider world. As people's lives are transformed, then the places they find themselves in are also transformed. Verse 28, when they heard this, they were filled with rage and began to cry out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed all together into the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's traveling companions. This mob was marked by rage. We want to be a group marked by joy. Listen, it's easy to be angry. It's God's intent that we be full of grace. Think of people God used historically in great revivals. I'll give two examples. Evan Roberts was one of those used in a major way in Wales. Someone remarked that the most striking feature of the revival is the joyousness and radiant happiness of the evangelist Evan Roberts. He said the very essence of his campaign was mirth. Think of Pastor Chuck Smith, those of you who know the history of Calvary Chapel, used by God in a wonderful way during the Jesus movement of the 1960s, a man of grace and joy. Now think of the movement shaking our nation today that you see pouring out on the news night after night. They're marked by rage and anger and destruction and violence. That's not from the Lord. And we don't want to be a part of that. This angry mob went and found two of Paul's friends, dragged them out into this riot. I'm guessing it was a surprise to them that day. But then again, this is what you sign up for when you become a believer. You're not only joining the ranks of heaven, you're enlisting in a war where you're promised trouble, hatred, attack from the enemies of God. We know that Aristarchus would even later become a prisoner for Christ along with Paul. And listen, we've signed up for the same thing. We enjoy a great amount of freedom and blessing in America, but as Christians, we've signed up for this, that if someone came right now with torches and guns and knives and said, bring the Christians out, we would say, yeah, that's kind of what was normal for most Christians in the last 2,000 years. And so we thank God for the blessing of living in a place like the United States, um, but we've signed up for this as well. Verse 30, although Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples did not let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent word to him, pleading with him not to venture into the amphitheater. Paul's often pictured alone in a cell or adrift in the sea, so it's a nice reminder that he really had friends who really loved him, and they knew he wouldn't hold back. He would go and put himself in danger for the sake of his friends and for the gospel, yet in this situation, that wouldn't have been wise. Matthew Henry once wrote this, we may be called upon to lay down our lives, but not to throw away our lives. And that's an important thing to keep in mind. In this situation, it was helpful for Paul to have wise people around him to counsel him to not go in. And we see he took it as from the Lord. Because later, we're gonna see a bunch of his friends begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And what's he's gonna say, hey, stop breaking my heart, I'm going. I know what lays ahead, I'm going. Right, and so in that case, he said, You guys are speaking out of your heart. In this case, it seems that he realized, okay, you guys are speaking from the Lord. Don't be a yes man to your Christian friends. Sometimes our friends have ideas or start making plans that we can look and see, that's going to shipwreck your life, or I think it might shipwreck your life. Be brave enough to restrain them, or at least plead with them not to set sail and crash on the rocks. That's a hard thing to do, but sometimes we need to do it. Verse 32, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some Jews in the crowd gave instruction to Alexander after they pushed him to the front. Motioning with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. When they recognized he was a Jew, they all shouted in unison for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So everything's boiled over now, right? For some reason, the Jewish community decided to try to get out in front of the story, probably because no matter who's being persecuted in history, if it's not the Jewish people, they're usually second on the list. And so Alexander goes out there to try to separate out the Jewish people, the Jewish community from these Christians but we're way past discussion or debate by this point. It's all fury and frenzy. And in Alexander's failure, we see why it wasn't a good situation for Paul to interject himself in. No one's listening. No one even knows why, why they're there. Verse 35. When the city clerk had calmed the crowd down, he said, People of Ephesus, what person is there who doesn't know that the city of of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and the image that fell from heaven? Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. for uh, For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess." So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session. They're pro Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run the risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today, since there's no justification that we can give as a reason for this disturbance. And after saying this, he dismissed the assembly. So this guy, this clerk, is probably the top dog when it comes to city officials. He's doing the best he can, but you can tell his focus is just all on their liberty, That's what he's worried about. He didn't want Ephesus to lose its status as a free city in the Roman Empire. Worse, a a riot like this could lead to military intervention and capital punishment for all the rioters. So the city clerk wants to keep his power and keep his liberty and keep his autonomy. He didn't really care that innocent men might die or anything like that. Uh, He cared about keeping the status quo. Hey, let's all calm down and get back to living how we were so that no one's gonna bother us and we can just do our own thing. As Christians, we don't want to just maintain the status quo in our communities because righteousness exalts a nation and we are to pursue justice and live quiet and peaceful lives marked by godliness and dignity that our communities might be transformed. Luckily, this riot diffused without more violence. Everybody went home. But what would have been a scary reality for the Christians in the city? Wondering, okay, is this gonna happen again tomorrow? And at just that moment, Paul's like, well, I'm headed out. (laughs) And so verse one of chapter 20, after the uproar was over, Paul sent for the disciples, encouraged them, and after saying farewell, departed to go to Macedonia. They would have to live in this time of instability, but they didn't need to be shaken. Paul encouraged them that there was no need to fear the mob. The mob may come, suffering might increase, but God was still surrounding them with his love and faithfulness. And the Christian imperative to walk with God in a way that changes lives still continued. Despite unrest, despite suspicion, because even though Christianity may be a threat to paganism, a threat to ill-gotten prosperity, a threat to human pride, it is a force for peace and good in every city, Ephesus or Hanford, in every climate, peaceful or not so peaceful. The nations may rage, but the Lord God is with us and will empower us to be his body, working his good work wherever we find ourselves until we move on to our final destination, the new Jerusalem."